The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WNKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investments. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm sure to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WNKV. And now your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we're putting folks just like you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. And today, our topic is how to buy your first apartment building, even if you have no money, no credit, and of course, no experience, or it wouldn't be your first apartment building. Before we go to our topic today, I'd like to thank all the folks who uh, pledged to support WMKV and Real Life Real Estate last week during the fund drive. If you missed your chance to pledge $499 and get the bestest beginners course in the entire world for real estate investors, Real Estate 101. We do, in fact, still have three of those packages available. What you want to do is go to wmkvfm.org. That's wmkvfm.org. And um, click on the thing on the front page that says Get Real Estate 101. And uh, we are, of course, having a live workshop here in Cincinnati for the folks who pledged to get that package. It's on April 25th and 26th. But even if you cannot attend live because, I don't know, maybe you're in Alaska like Aya. See, Aya, I said your name. I didn't, I didn't try and get past it. Even if you're in Alaska, you can just get the home study course. It does come with audios of the live seminar. So a great investment in both your financial future and in public radio. Again, go to wmkv.org to claim one of the last three packages. Don't forget to fan Real Life Real Estate Investing on Facebook by going to realliferealestateradio.com. We've got over 200 fans who get notifications every week about what our topic is. Also, we are taking requests from our fans about what future topics they'd like to see. Plus, you can see pictures of me if you've ever been curious about what it is I look like and videos from some of our past shows. That's realliferealestateradio.com on Facebook. My guest today is a self-made multimillionaire who actually started as a struggling auto mechanic and was worth over a million dollars within just three years of beginning to invest in real estate. He is a nationally known expert on topics including creative finance and today's topic, which is how to buy commercial properties. Joining us from his home in Maryland, we've got Peter Conti. Peter Welcome to Real hey, Life Real Estate. How are you doing? I'm good, Peter. How are you? Great. It's uh, good to be here with you and all of the Real Life Real Estate radio show listeners. And hopefully we can we can get into some of the things that are happening in the marketplace that are making real estate even more exciting. Yes, even more exciting than it's ever been. And it's always been exciting. So <laughs> this is a this is a this is a great market to be in. But uh, what we promised folks that we were going to talk about today was something that there's there's a lot of interest in right now, uh, and that is how to buy your first apartment building. There's a feeling out there in the market that in a recession, uh, housing like single family homes and that sort of thing maybe gets a little bit harder to rent, but apartments get easier to rent because they are uh, generally cheaper than. Uh, single-family type housing. Uh, has that been your experience? 
Well, I think that's true. I think the other thing we're finding with all the foreclosures is that people who maybe should have never owned a home because they really couldn't qualify for a real loan, but they got one of these real easy-to-get loans, they've been getting foreclosed out of their homes and actually moving into, you guessed it, apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing vacancy rates going down. The other thing that's going on is that there's just some crazy stuff going on with the lenders in this country, if you if you didn't know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so how that affects commercial investing is that loans for apartment buildings are not easy to get, and that's, that's good news and that's bad news. Now, the bad news is if you're going to go out and buy an apartment conventionally and you'd saved up 20 percent down and you were going to go get a loan, unless you're buying a, a well-performing apartment where everything's taken care of and fully leased up and a really nice property, which seems like what you'd want to buy until you recognize that with commercial property, buying stuff that the income is down but that you can make easy changes to get it up. Mm-hmm. So if you want to buy a property like that, you can get a loan, but if you want to buy a property that has what we call upside, like something maybe where it's got a oh, 20% vacancy rate, mm-hmm. can't get a new loan to buy it. Mm-hmm. So that's the bad news. The good news is that because those loans aren't available, sellers who are motivated to sell and do a deal are more open to rate of offers, which means you can buy without using your own cash or credit. The other thing is that there's people out in the marketplace that they got a loan three or five years ago, and they've got balloons coming due on those loans. Guess what happens when they go to refinance right now? Mm-hmm. Can't do it. Yeah, I just did an interview with the local business paper on exactly that topic. They called and said we're hearing a lot about uh, people who had uh, commercial equity lines or uh, loans that had five-year, 10-year balloons that are going back to the bank and being told, sorry, you have to pay us off. And, right. Uh, uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they can't pay off. So what do they do? I mean, it's, it's kind of well, seller going to foreclosure, right? Right. So they put it on the marketplace, and it presents some unique opportunities for us as investors to go in and pick up. We're seeing properties, commercial properties, available now that are better deals than I have ever seen. And I, and I started investing in 1990, so at least a, a few years ago. And there's better opportunities now than I have ever seen in my entire. What is it? 19 years of investing now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My guest today is Peter Conti, and we're talking about how to buy your first apartment or commercial building, even if you don't have money or credit. Our lines are open at 772-9658 or outside the greater Cincinnati area at 877-772-9658 and we do welcome your calls today as well as your emails if you'd like to send us an email just go to askvina.com and fill in the response form and we will get the email uh, hopefully in time to answer it before the end of the program now peter uh, we've got uh, just a couple of minutes before the break I, i'd like you to talk just a little and we'll get we'll get more into the details of how this stuff works but i'd like you to talk uh, for just a minute if you can about the building in oklahoma city that you and your partners recently purchased? Well, this was a a 206-unit apartment building, and this was owned by someone who bit off more than he could chew. He actually bought 14 commercial properties his first year investing, and over three years, he totally mismanaged those. He was managing this property in Oklahoma City from California and did such a horrible job that he lost this property to a foreclosure, and, and the occupancy rate, not the vacancy rate, the occupancy rate was 20%. <laughs> 
So we were able to buy this property as a short sale from the lender. Now, he owed $3.6 million on it, and we bought it for $2.8 million. And we just got the paperwork through from HUD, who's going to give us our permanent financing on this. And it looks like once the renovation is complete, there is some work to do. It's going to be worth over $9 million. And that's so, what you call upside. Well, that's one of the cool <laughs> things about commercial property is that you can hit some home run deals. And it doesn't take a, uh, an outstanding commercial property for you to make a million dollars on it. Just find, It requires you that you know how to find properties, you know how to evaluate them, you know how to uh, use some of the easy techniques that I'm going to share with everyone as far as how to structure deals and buy it without using your own money. This Oklahoma City deal, guess whose money we used? Not yours, I know that. Other, other people's <laughs> money. For the most part, I ended up putting a little bit of our family money in it just because we were offering such a great deal to our investors that I couldn't turn it up, uh, turn it down myself. So... It is possible to buy everything from a, a little four-unit property up to properties that have hundreds of units out there in this marketplace if you're open the idea of making big money. If you don't want to make big money and you're happy working that job and just really want to be there to keep your boss happy for the rest of your life, then you definitely don't want to come to the Cincinnati RIA meeting and learn about how to buy your first apartment building. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. We're going to take a quick break and give our listeners a chance to call us at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. We'll be back right after this. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Peter Conti, who, as he alluded to just before the break, is the featured keynote speaker at next week's, not tomorrow's, a week from tomorrow's, Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati meeting. That meeting is a guest night. There's Everyone's bringing their friends. I would strongly suggest that if you're coming out to that, and should, that you come early because um, we may just run out of seats at that event. It's held at the Community Action, uh, Community Action Center at... Jordan Crossing at the corner of Reading and Seymour. Uh, it's the big white building in the back of the parking lot. You'll see a lot, a bunch of cars parked there that say things like I buy houses on them. And it is open to the public as always. You can get more information at 859-292-7342 or at CincinnatiRia.com. Uh, so, Peter, we're, we're, we're going to get now into some of the, of the details about how one does deals like the one that you and your students did in Oklahoma City that had uh, short sale was involved and they took less than the mortgage balance. And then when it's uh, turned over, it's going to be worth nine plus million dollars and you bought it for two something million dollars. I mean, those are those are some pretty big numbers. They're not they're not out of whack with what people are doing in the residential market. The difference is we're buying a ninety thousand dollar house for twenty thousand dollars and you're buying a nine million dollar building for two million dollars. So you just you add zeros, and all of a sudden, the the, the whole thing, including the profits, uh, uh, tend to go through the ceiling. Um, is it is it typically your practice in your own business to try and find properties that are are under market and distressed like that, as opposed to ones that are up and running and operating and beautiful? Well, you know, it's interesting, Vina, because uh, one of the things I'll be talking about at the Cincinnati RIA meeting is how you come up with the funding for these. One of the things in this marketplace, we talked earlier about the fact that, that loans are not available. So being able to connect with the right people 
who will provide you the cash that you need to go out and buy the properties is key. The interesting thing is that, that some people love deals like the Oklahoma City deal. They love something with a huge upside. Other people I found in talking to them, they're going, okay, I understand I can make all this money, but oh my goodness, it's it's only 20% occupied. What could go wrong? And they, they start to... They're operating out of more of this scarcity mode, which I'm sure you, you know is prevalent in today's economy. Mm-hmm. And so what we found is that in some cases, having some of those properties that are cash-flowing properties, we've got a mobile home park under contract right now south of Albuquerque, that cash flows just like it is. And so investors who want something that is already cash-flowing can invest in an opportunity like that, the nice thing about that property is that it works as it is. It's a 32-unit mobile home park, but it's already been approved for another 117 units that just need the electrical and sewer pulled in. So it cash flows now, and it's got a big upside, and it's, it's probably going to take five or ten years to recognize all of that. But it's it's just it's wild. I, even just a simple little deal like that, that I have not seen deals with that kind of upside out in the marketplace until just within the past, oh, four to six months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, really, it sounds like the commercial business in a lot of ways is the, is the same thing as what people try to do in the residential business, which is find the biggest bargain. Put as little money, a little of your own money into it as possible. Obviously, if you're tr- if you're trying to turn over a 200 plus unit building that only has 20 percent occupancy, you're probably going to end up doing some upgrades to that building to get it more occupied. So it's not that there's no money going into it; it's just not your money. And then at the back end, what what what's the goal here? I mean, with, with the Oklahoma City building, was, is the goal get it rented up and make enormous cash flow, or is it sell it? Well, that property actually cash flows at 50% occupancy, and we're underway to get a HUD. HUD has a program that is designed for rehabbing properties like that, where HUD is going to give us a little over $6 million to pay off all of our original investors, provide all of the money for doing a major facelift on the property, making the outside look nice, going through most all the units, really putting it in tip-top shape, and then... We're going to complete leasing up the property, and one of the things that's, that's interesting is that when you look at the lending requirements on a, a what we call a nice property, something that's fully functional and, and leased up, which the Oklahoma City property will be once we're done with it, the lenders like to have two years of a track record of a property performing in order to give the highest loan amounts. So in order to maximize this investment, our game plan is to turn around, get it rehabbed, get it leased up, and then operate the property for at least two years before putting it on the marketplace so that whoever comes in to buy it, we're able to provide the documentation, the track record of two years of a, of a performing asset so that they can get the highest loan, and of course we can sell the property for the, the highest dollar amount. Not to mention that if it cash flows at 50% occupancy, the cash flow at 90 or 95 percent is going to be tremendous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Peter, clearly, I mean, you don't live in both Albuquerque and Annapolis and Oklahoma City. You're truly doing national investing. 
at this point? Yeah, in the the the, uh, the way to look at it, there's actually two different tracks that someone can go on. One is uh, a solo track. If someone wants to do things on their own, that's the way I started out with my investing. I, I didn't realize that you could make a lot more money working with other people than just doing it on your own. And I was kind of stubborn, and I always, as someone had told me once, well, if you can do something on your own, why, why partner with someone else? And I didn't realize that that was limiting the type of properties that I went after, but I started buying properties that are a good fit for the solo commercial investor. Anything from four or five units on up to oh, 20, 50 units is a, is a good fit. Typically, a property needs to have over about 100 units as an apartment building for it to be able to afford to pay for both a professional property manager and an on-site resident manager, which is what gives you the ability to invest from far away is making sure that the management is taken care of without you being there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're just getting your feet wet and you want to go out and get some smaller properties, you can use the creative techniques that I'll be uh, teaching those of you who are listening, when you come to the uh, meeting on March 19th, you use those to buy smaller properties that you own on your own and you, you get involved in doing the management. And that's a good thing to do, especially in the beginning years, to get out there, get your feet wet a little bit, find out what it's like to deal with a Section 8 tenant if you've never had the joy of doing that before. <laughs> and then uh, can either work up to the point or we've got some people now who are busy professionals. They just don't have that much time to put into overseeing the portfolio themselves. And so what they do is they look for opportunities to either on their own or by aligning with other commercial investors out there, go get into a deal that's our larger property that will be professionally managed so that uh, it doesn't really matter. The building could be right down the street where they could drive by it, or it could be a couple thousand miles away. It, it really doesn't matter if you're picking the right type of property that's large enough to allow you to invest from afar. And there certainly are uh, examples just you know all over the country, of course, and I could point to several here in the Cincinnati area, of people who have stayed more comfortable with the idea of simply you know having their little 25, 40-unit building that's here local that they can see every day and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. No one's saying that you got to jump into the whole national game. But uh, as you say, because of the nature of these properties, it does it does work well, at least with a good ground team, uh, nationwide. Well, so let's talk. Let's talk about because uh, sometimes I think we get uh, too excited and we talk, start talking about some of these big, huge deals out there. And if if there's someone out there listening who's at the position I was when I got started. I mean, look, I was working as an auto mechanic. I, I couldn't envision myself owning a 10-unit a when I got started, much less a 100-unit property. So if someone was saying, oh, yeah, 500 units, no problem, you can do it, I wouldn't have believed them and I wouldn't have had the guts to go out and try it. So let's, let's break it down to its simplest level. You're, you find a property, let's say it's a 20-unit a, a building, you find what I call a tired landlord, someone who's owned the property for a long time. They are probably getting a good cash flow because they bought the property for much less than it's worth nowadays. They're probably not aggressively raising their rents because they don't want their tenants to move and they don't want the headache or the hassle of having to do turnarounds and that type of thing. So they're they're just kind of taking the the lazy person's way road 
to riches, which is they bought the property a number of years ago. It's making them good cash flow, and they don't want to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Now, because income properties are valued based upon the income that they bring in, let's say that this landlord is only charging 75% of what they could be getting in, in rents. What you can do is you can approach this person, and it's not going to work with everybody, but you can approach this person and offer to basically take over that property and pay them the exact same amount that they're getting right now after they have to collect the rents, they have to manage it, or they have to oversee someone doing the maintenance repairs and all that type of stuff. Basically say, Mr. Hired Landlord, (laughs) that's their name, I'll get you the same net amount on average, we can look at the past two years, and I'll, I'll get you that same amount that you net every single month with you doing absolutely none of the work if, in exchange for letting me run your property, you will also give me an option to buy it based upon the income that it's bringing in today. And there's some simple formulas that are in use. It's not a, a big secret. There's some simple cap rates and things like that that any commercial broker knows about. We'll go through them at the meeting on March 19th so you understand how to do them base the option price, your right to buy that building on its current income, which is based on the rents coming in at 75% of the amount that they could. What, what do you think the next step is? Uh, raise the rents. Yeah, you take it over, you raise the rents. Now, some of the people are going to move. They're not going to be happy to have their rent raised. That's okay. They move out. It's much easier to paint and clean the unit without them in it, and you can turn around and rent those units for the full market rents. When we take over a building like this, we we don't raise everyone's rent to the full market rate. We bump the people that have been there a long time just partway up because we don't want everyone to move out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then what you do, and again, there's a simple formula based upon that increase in the rents. In this case, you can actually increase the income of the property by 25%. That is going to instantly boost the value of that building up to an amount that is more than your purchase price, more than your option price that you have on the property. Mm-hmm. So you're buying it, you're buying the property, and if you structure it correctly, you can do it without using any of your own money. Uh, it's called a mastered lease. It's kind of like doing a lease option on a house, but you're doing it with a larger property, you're doing it with an apartment building. Now, staying with the local solo investor concept, 20-unit property, the advantage of a 20-unit property is you've got all 20 units, you've got all 20 tenants right in one location. So rather than having 15 or 20 houses spread out across Cincinnati, you've got all of your tenants in one spot, your maintenance and repair person, when they go by there, everything's in one place. Typically, the way buildings are constructed, a lot of the ovens and the, the faucets and the different components of a building, the windows, are all the same. So you can have spare parts on hand that fit every single unit in all the units in your apartment building. And the other advantage with a 20-unit apartment building is if you're 10% empty in an apartment building like that, you're only down two tenants, where if you have a house 
and your tenant moves out of the house, you're, you're missing out on 100% of your income from that house. Very, very true. And a good tip about the master lease with option to buy. We need to take a quick break. I want to invite our listeners to give us a call at 772-9658 at 877-772-9658 if you're outside the greater Cincinnati area or via our website at askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Peter Conti. And and before we go on, I have to try one more time for our, our one Alaska listener. I messed his name up again at the beginning of the show. It's Aya Sanko. Aya, not Aya. So Aya. Aya Sanko. Aya. See, and now Aya, Peter said your name too. So you're like seriously famous now. He's, All right, he's go been, Alaska. He's been he's been like texting me saying you still messed it up. I usually just call him Al when he calls because I just can't <laughs> you know I'm so sensitive to names being mis- mispronounced since I you know get Vina and Verna and all sorts of things all the time. So anyway, hopefully we did it right. I'm sure he'll let us know in just a moment. Um, Peter, we've got a couple of emails that have come in uh, via our askvina.com website. Uh, one of which is uh, asking where you, how how do you go about finding these sort of undermanaged, sort of possibly run down apartments that you can get these good deals on? Well, there's first off, there's there's some simple little things that you can do. Uh, the other thing that I want to share with you is that the, the biggest mistake that most people make when they're looking for deals. So. First off, the big mistake that people make. There is a website that a lot of people go to. It's net.com. Am I allowed to say a website here? Uh, sure. Okay. If not, you can bleep it out. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Seven seconds has passed. <laughs> uh, where, and I don't have any interest. It's not my website. But it's kind of like an MLS for commercial properties. And if you go there and run through some of the formulas and things that I'll teach you at the meeting, look at a number of deals and and typically the response is hey wait a minute peter there's there's not really any good deals here now some of my students have found great deals there and, and ended up buying properties right off there or right off the deals that when they call a commercial broker and say you know what properties do you have they they've gotten lucky and they've gotten a a good deal and what happens though in most cases is run the numbers and it's it's almost like someone's put a property up there and they're asking a price that if someone came and paid it, great, they'd be happy to sell, but no one in their right mind who's a real serious investor is going to pay that. I'm sure you run across houses that are priced that way in the marketplace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, yes. So the key is how do you find the great deals? And the great deals, most of the time, with a commercial property are what we call a, a pocket listing. I know you have that with houses as well. It's where a, a broker has a property and they have not advertised it or put it out there yet. And if they know that you are interested in getting a property and they know that you have the capability to close because when you close the deal, they get paid their big fat commission that is what motivates them to do what they do, then they're going to call you up and say, hey, I've got a deal. You'd like to take a look at this before I promote it or put it out to the marketplace. 
Uh, we've got a property right now. I can't tell you what city it's in or even how many units it has because we don't have it under contract yet, but it's a, uh, an amazing deal that got just from this method, and it was from developing a relationship with a real estate broker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's the key. When you're looking at properties, you want to be able to look beyond just the property that's there in front of you what may come further down the line. So maybe you're calling off some website that you found somewhere or a deal that you read about in the newspaper, and you, you get the information, and it really doesn't look like a great deal. What you want to do is you want to use that opportunity to start the beginning of a relationship with that commercial broker to where when they do come across a great deal, that hopefully they're going to contact you as one of the first people that can have a shot at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so relationships, as always, really important. Relationships, in, in, big, big, big time. In real the estate. other thing is there, there's a simple way that you can find these lazy landlord properties, and it's so simple that most people hearing this will say, oh, that's, that's too simple an idea. It couldn't possibly work. I'm not going to do it. But a couple people will go out, and they'll find some properties. They may even have them under contract by the time they come to the meeting on March 19th. And what you do is you simply go around, you knock on doors of apartment buildings, and you do what's known as a rent survey. Say, hi, sorry to bother you. Uh, I'm going to be renting some apartments around here, and I was wondering if you knew what other people, I always say other people, I don't want them to think I'm nosy, if you know what other people around here in this building are paying in rent. And people are very open. They'll tell you, oh, we're, we're paying 725 and got a one bedroom and the two bedrooms rent for 925. They'll tell you a lot of information. And the nice thing about doing a rent survey like that is you can it's almost like a little a mini appraisal almost of the property. Now again, you need to know how to use the simple formulas and things that uh, I'll, I'll teach you at the meeting in order to figure this out. But what you're looking for is you're looking for that property where the rents are low. Mm-hmm. And simply by going through and knocking on some of the doors, you don't have to knock on all of them, uh, a few doors in each apartment building, you can put it in a little Excel spreadsheet if you're the, you're the uh, uh, engineering type, or you could write it down on the back of a, a napkin or something if you're as organized as I am. And you're looking for the property where the rents are low. When you find a property with low rents, that lets you know that most likely that building is owned by a lazy landlord, and it's a perfect property for you to target to pick up with a a master lease or some of the other techniques that uh, you'll be learning about throughout the meeting or over time mm-hmm. to my creatively. Okay, very good. The uh, other question that, uh, that question, by the way, I, I didn't read the guy's name, is from Jacob in Worthington, Ohio. His other question is, what techniques do you use to fill your vacancies without giving them away? Oh, to fill the vacancies without giving them away, yeah. Uh, well, the good news is that right now it's not really... Uh, a challenge. One of the, the things that I learned years ago was that any good apartment building is going to have a 5% vacancy factor. Now, you might think, wait a minute, Peter, I don't want any vacancies. I, I want my building to have no vacancies. Well, if your building is big enough, you're going to have people coming and going, number one. Number two, if you're aggressively raising your rents on a regular basis, and, and yes, you have to wait to the end of the lease to raise the rent. You can't just raise it any time you want. But if you're aggressively raising your rents and being a market leader in rents, which is what I recommend, because, again, an income property is based upon, the value is based upon the income it brings in. So if you can 
work hard to get the highest rents in the neighborhood, you're also going to have the highest building value in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. If your vacancy is less than 5%, in fact, if you find a building with a waiting list and no vacancies, that means the rents are too low. If your vacancies increase past 5% and you're doing the things you should do, the advertising and getting people to come by the property and that type of thing, if your vacancies go above 5%, in particular if they get up to 10% or higher, that means that you may need your rents for a period of time in order to keep that building occupied. Mm -hmm. So how do you fill the units? Well, one thing is understanding that apartments are a commodity just like anything else out there. If there's a loaf of bread and it's for sale in a store and enough people walk by that need bread and look at it and it's priced right, that loaf of bread is not going to last very long on the shelf of that store. And that same is true. Same is true when you sell houses, I know as well, if they're priced correctly. Same is true for an apartment building. If that apartment building is, is neat and clean and decent, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be a, a decent place to live. And it's priced accordingly. Someone is going to rent out that property. Now, there's a lot of other techniques and things that you can do, everything from advertising and local bulletin boards at churches and going to different employers around in the area to offering incentives and things. I, I try not to give away rent if I can avoid it. We've done things like give away microwaves or TVs or things like that from time to time, uh, but we try not to give away the rent. We want to get them used to paying that rent on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have another question here via email from Dorn in Fishers, Indiana. What are the main pitfalls and items to watch out for when buying commercial uh, property, properties, apartment communities, or buildings specifically? All right. And uh, do we have just a 20-hour show, or how long do we have? <laughs> main pitfalls, Peter, main pitfalls. <laughs> just Probably the sh- biggest one to look out for is that when you're looking at buying a property, you never get all of the information that, that you really should get to make a, a good decision. What I mean by that is sellers and brokers conveniently find a way to somehow have the income look like it's higher than it probably is, and uh, mysteriously forget or omit some of the expenses that they may have in running that property. Mm -hmm. Because, again, going back to our formula, income properties are, the value is based upon the income that they create. There's a way you just take that income and you can turn it into a a number. That's kind of what's fun about commercial properties is there's not as much emotion that goes into coming up with a value or negotiating. It's, It's all numbers. The challenge is when someone says, yes, here's what the property's getting in income and here's what the expenses are, typically this is faxed over, say, from a commercial broker to you, you need to be able to look at that and be able to read through the lines a little bit. And the way that we do that is quite simple. We learn over time what range the uh, rent should be within an area, and we learn what range the the expenses should be for all of the different categories. Mm-hmm. Everything from the accounting to the property management to maintenance and repair. Over time, you can get to where you know what uh, expenses should be on a property. So if someone is telling you, well, my maintenance and repair only runs 7%, and let's say that you own a similar 10-unit property that's uh, two blocks away that you've been running for four years and your expenses for maintenance and repairs have been running 15%, 
then you know that the seller is a liar or that they conveniently somehow <laughs> are underestimating, or maybe they're not. Maybe they do their own maintenance and repair, and for them it really does cost them just 7% because they're not taking into account that the value of their time that they put into the property. But when you run your numbers, you need to know the correct amount to put in there. Now, if you own a sister property, blocks down, it's easy to know that. The way you get to know those expenses is either by looking at a lot of properties and, and getting to know what the numbers really are, or by finding someone that's created a system where they can tell you what range those expenses should be within so that when you look at the numbers from a property and something doesn't look right or doesn't fit the range of what you know that expense should be, then that brings up a red flag and, and you can say, oh, wait a minute, Mr. Broker, I, I seem to be missing the number right here. Or even just fill it in yourself and do your own math and go back to the broker and say, well, based upon my evaluation, here's what the property is worth from my perspective. Mm-hmm. So that, that's probably the biggest thing to watch out for is the misrepresented income and expenses that you get. And it's it's crazy, but I have, in all my years, 19 years of investing, I have never yet seen a property that's been fully 100% accurately represented. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying all sellers are liars. I'm just saying that you need to, to uh, be careful when you're looking at <laughs> commercial properties. You just need to know that there's stuff that's going to be left out. You need to learn to read between the lines. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Today, we're talking about how to buy your first apartment building, even if you have no money or credit. My guest is Peter Conti, and we will be back right after this. Hey, kids, it's Mr. Drew. Do you want to know more about real estate investing and hear about upcoming events? Check out Vina's website at realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and my guest today is Peter Conti, who, amongst other things, is the co-author of Commercial Real Estate Investing for Dummies. He's kind of a big deal out there in the commercial world, and we're talking today about how to buy your first apartment building, even if you have no money or credit. We're getting emails via the AskVina.com website, as well as taking your calls at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Got a question here via email from Jim in Cincinnati, who says that he will be at the RIA meeting a week from tomorrow, but that he would like you to discuss the pros and cons of taking a building with smaller efficiency in one-bedroom units and combining them into larger three-bedroom, two- and three-bedroom units. What's your take on the trade-off with fewer but larger, more stable units, but lower gross potential rents? Okay, uh, great question. And uh, actually, you can go either way with an apartment building. You can take an apartment that has, let's, well, let's say, three-bedroom units, and you could divide those up and turn, a, uh, turn it into uh, smaller stuff. Obviously, each unit is going to need to have its own in bathroom in most cases. And... Really, what you're doing is you're you're taking uh, a property and saying, "Do I want something that is going to be more management intensive, but is going to create a higher income, or do I want a property that's going to be easier for me to look after and maybe not generate as much income?" Now, the advantage of having a lot of studios or efficiencies is you can get the maximum rent or by a, a square footage basis. The downside, and if you're looking at a property, and I've seen some this way that are all 
efficiency units or maybe they're half efficiencies and half one bedrooms. The downside to a building like that is most people, when they move into a, an efficiency or a studio, they're doing that for one reason. <laughs> the reason they're doing that is maybe they've just been laid off from their job or times are hard or they're just getting on their feet, and they're going to live in that studio until they can afford a one-bedroom. Once they get doing a little better or they get into a relationship and get married and have a family, they're going to move up into a two- or a three-bedroom. So the larger the, the mix, the, the number of bedrooms, the more stable that property is. People that live in a three-bedroom apartment generally are going to live there for years and years where a building with efficiencies in them, you can have people that even if you have a year lease, they, they move in and they move out and they're gone in three or four months. Or, I'm not saying that's the case with every property, but that's, that's the trade-off. So what you really need to do is look at a property and recognizing that you're going to have more turnover with the smaller units. Is it worth that to offset the increase in the larger amount of rent that you get? Uh, some people will take it to an extreme. They'll take a property, and depending where it's located, they'll take a property, and this does work well with a property that does, let's say you had that building where it had half efficiencies and half one-bedroom units. They'll actually take a property like that, and rather than renting it out on a monthly basis, they'll rent it out on a weekly basis, and they'll collect rent once a week, which is more management-intensive. The interesting thing, though, is that people, there's, there's actually 4.3 weeks in a month, but people don't think of it that way. They think of four weeks in a month. So if you have a property and you can get, say, for a an efficiency, three or $400 per week, mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm sorry, let's say $400 a, a month for an efficiency, just keep the math simple. Mm-hmm. People, if you rent that same property out for $100 per week, people will think of it as a $400 a month apartment, but they're really paying... $430 per month mm-hmm. on average. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great question. Yeah, very sophisticated question. Uh, we have uh, a question now from Aya, whose name we did pronounce right, by the way. And he says, shout out to Marilyn because he grew up in Silver Spring. And then Aya from Alaska? Aya from Alaska, yes. And he moved from Maryland to Alaska? <laughs> yes, I, I, <laughs> you guys will have to discuss that. Um uh, his question is in regards to sort of dealing with the sellers. And w- his initial question was, would you do a background check on a seller uh, sort of similar to what you might do on a prospective tenant? And when I asked him to clarify, he said to understand the motivation that they might have to give up the property. Um, so I think what he's what he's really asking, or, or you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth or anything, but uh, I think what he's really asking is how far do you go in sort of checking out the seller and the situation, and do you do that with public record searches, or do you do it just by talking to the seller? Well, it, I'm sure that there's someone out there with a, a course available that you know, press a button and it'll tell you all the seller's deep dark motivations within. So two seconds or less. Unfortunately, there probably is such a course, but <laughs> I will, I will, I will, I will say if there is one, it isn't going to work. <laughs> so, the, the funny thing is that uh, commercial properties are a people business, just like buying single-family homes. And the more you can find out about the seller, the more you can connect with the seller, the more that you can get the seller to to like you. If you're if you're young, if you're just finishing college and you're going out to buy an apartment building. 
want to connect with that seller that, let's say, the seller is older than you and, and get that seller to see a young themselves in you and ask them questions like, well, if you were me, what would you do? And, and wow, you've done so well, Mr. Seller. I bet you have a lot of things you could teach someone like me just getting started. If you're older than the seller, you can do the same thing. You can say, wow, you're, you're, you're doing so well at such a young age. I bet you've got a lot of great things that you could teach me. And you, you, you kind of work off the seller's ego. Uh, and the fun part is there's a, a simple process that I put together. There's actually seven steps with commercial properties, but seven simple steps that we use with a seller that help the seller to connect with you, like you, trust you, share with you really what's going on in their situation. And that's the secret ingredient to putting together these creative deals. Sometimes people will, will they'll send me the P&L, the numbers on a property. Here's the numbers on the property. Tell me, how, how should I buy this from the seller? Which of your creative methods should I use to buy this property? Well, the numbers don't tell you anything about the seller and the seller's situation and what the seller is trying to accomplish. So quick, quick example. We had a, a seller of a property. This was one out in California. And he was asking $600,000 for this property. And we asked him, well, when you sell the property, what are you going to do? He said, well, I bought a property in, uh, I think it was in Arizona. Uh, I'm going to go retire there. I've already bought it. I just need to move there. And we said, well, what are you going to do with the money from this property? He said, well, I'm going to put it in a, in a bank. And at that time, he was going to get like 5% interest on it. You're going to put it in a bank account and get 5% interest. Okay, well, if there was a way that we could structure the deal where we bought the property and you got that same 5% interest, is that something we should talk about or probably not? Now, of course, that's leading us into what we ended up putting in place on that property, which was an owner-carry deal where he accepted 5% interest over, I think we had a six-year term in that case, and uh, bought that property for 600000 and sold it uh, about four and a half years later for 935000 So the key is, is in the, the connection with the seller, getting the seller to like you and trust. People do deals with people they like and know and trust all day long, all day long. Everyone wants to to do the deal based off the numbers and the math and what's the, the perfect creative technique that's going to work based upon these numbers. Well, the right way to buy a property is you find a way to help that seller achieve what they want to achieve, but maybe they'll do it in a different way. They're, they're thinking because of their discussion with the broker that someone's going to come in, give them 20% down, get a loan, and they're going to take their money and go off and do, do whatever they're going to do. So... Look for ways that you can find out enough about what the seller wants to achieve. I, I uh, had a lesson that I, I learned from one of my great mentors, Peter Fortunato, many years ago. And Peter said, well, the seller wants cash. Great. What are they going to do with the cash? Uh, is it still going to be sitting here on the table if we come back two weeks later? Is it still going to be sitting there? Oh, no. It's going to be, what, what are you going to do with it? Finding ways to help the seller achieve that whatever it is that they want to do. Uh, 
the but way, using the, the, their the, assets to help you do that. The way to get deals every time. We are out of time, Peter. I wanted to remind listeners once again that you're going to be at Cincinnati Rio a week from Thursday. They can get more information and a special report that you've written on ways to find cash flowing properties at CincinnatiRia.com or at 859-292-RIA. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.